hear, O Lord, and hear me, for I am poor and in misery. Preserve my life, for I am faithful. My God, save your servant who puts his trust in you. Be merciful unto me, O Lord, for I will call daily upon you. Comfort the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and gracious, and of great mercy to all those who call upon you. Give ear, Lord, unto my prayer, and attend to the voice of my humble supplications. In the time of my trouble I will call upon you, for you answer me when I call. Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any deeds like yours. All nations that you have made shall come and worship you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. Indeed, you are God alone. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. O knit my heart to you, that I may fear your name. I will thank you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and will praise your name forevermore. For great is your mercy toward me. You have delivered my life from the nethermost pit. O God, the proud have risen up against me, and the company of violent men have sought after my life, and have not set you before their eyes. But you, O Lord God, are full of compassion and mercy, long-suffering, plenteous in goodness and truth. O turn then unto me, and have mercy upon me. Give your strength unto your servant, and help the son of your handmaid. Show me some token of your favor, that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed. Because you, Lord, have been my helper and comforter. The word of the Lord. Father in heaven, um, the psalm says, uh, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. O knit my heart to you, that I may fear your name. Father, most of us spend most of our lives thinking, feeling, expecting that you are far from us. And sometimes only rarely, and for some of us not yet ever, have we experienced what it is to be, to know that you are right up against us and right up with us and that we are right up with you, near, close, that your presence is knowable. But Father, I pray that you will give that gift, that you will grant your presence to be knowable. So draw near to us. And will you give us the reality to which that verse in that psalm points? Will you knit our hearts to you that we may fear your name, that we may know you for real, for some of us for the first time, that we may all of us know you more deeply than we have up until this point. So do in us and for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Get us and bring us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Please sit down. <clears throat> and... Um, if you would, turn back to the psalm. We're going to look at the psalm today that we were uh, praying as we sang together. You know, if you've been around Emmanuel for a little bit, we, when we sing together, especially at the beginning of the service, there's always a psalm that is um, interwoven into uh, the songs. It actually works the other way. We start with the psalm for the week. And then we weave in and select the music around the psalm. And you may not know that, but that's how it works. 
Um, and uh, we're going to be looking at that psalm. We don't just say psalms, by the way. This is just parenthetical. This bit's for free. This sermon hasn't even started yet. We don't just say the psalms. We don't recite the psalms. We don't even read the psalms. Of course, we do all those things. But I want to encourage you to use a different verb. We pray the psalms. The reason that that matters is that in prayer, when we pray the psalms, we're giving our consent to the psalms, and we're in a way making them our own. I want to encourage you uh, to do that. Um, but that was just an aside. Take a look at uh, pages five and seven. Those are the two halves of the psalms. You're going to have to go back and forth. And here's a question uh, that I want to encourage you to bat around. What does authentic spirituality look like? Uh, what are the marks of genuine, authentic, non-phony Christian spirituality? Now, that's a big question, but the Psalms, all of them together, give us an insight here. So the Psalms, if you're not familiar with them, uh, there are 150 prayers and hymns and songs uh, that are uh, placed right in the center of the Hebrew Scriptures, right in the middle of what we call the Old Testament. And uh, for, you know, 2,500 years at the very least, these uh, collection of 150 uh, psalms, hymns, prayers, they have been just indispensable gifts for the Jewish tradition and for the Christian tradition. They've just shaped spirituality. And here's part of why they're so helpful. The Psalms allow us to look at the spiritual life from a very unique camera angle. What do I mean by that? Well, so often when we think about uh, religion, when we think about uh, Christianity, when we think about the moral life, the spiritual life, very often we're looking at it understandably from the outside. So we're thinking about behaviors. What should I do? What should I not do? Things like that. Or we're thinking about beliefs. What should I believe? What should I teach? What should I not believe? Well, that kind of thing. Now, the Psalms care about all of that. However, the Psalms also look at all of it from a different camera perspective. And I say that because they're prayers. And because they're prayers, it's like they take the camera and they go inside the heart of the believer. They go inside the mind, the psychology of the person that's praying, and they allow us to see what it looks like to wrestle with God from the inside. And the Psalms, in a way, give us a lot of uncut footage. Do you know what I mean by that? The Psalms, you'll notice if you've prayed them much, the Psalms are not airbrushed. They're not all cleaned up. They're often less pious than you expect they're going to be. Um, for instance, you get a lot of questions that kind of hang in the air and go unanswered. You get a lot of angry, like angry psalms. Where are you, God, and how long is it going to be like this? You get uh, fearful psalms. Where are you, God? And everything looks bad around here. You get thankful psalms and joyful psalms, and often all of them are, are meshed in together. The psalms are not all tidied up. And yet, despite that, there's a remarkable harmony that holds it all together. And the harmony 
is that the Psalms show us how God and God's beauty uh, are to be experienced from the full range of human experience. Now, all that's just kind of introduction, but let me zero in on one aspect of true spirituality. Take a look at the psalm. Look at, um, I think it's page 7. Look at, find verse 11. It says this. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. O knit my heart to you, that I may fear your name. Focus on that last line, and let's say it together. Together. Oh, knit my heart to you that I may fear your name. Here's what I want to uh, show you today. True spirituality is a single-minded, heart-level attachment to God. Let me explain. You see the word knit there? Oh, knit my heart. Um, it's a wonderful image. And the word in the Hebrew means one of two things or both. It means to unite, or it means to join. If unite is the main thing, then the idea is something like this. Make me single-minded towards you, God. Don't let me be divided in my loyalty. Center my whole psychology upon you, God. But then the word can also mean join together which is the emphasis in this translation it uses the word knit. If the main idea is to join together, then the idea is something like this. Tether my heart to you, O God. Bind my heart to you, O God. Attach my heart to you. Now, um, some of you may have heard of uh, attachment theory. I'm not a psychologist, so I shouldn't say anything. However, um, my understanding, and some of you who know what you're talking about can tell me later if I'm right. Um, my understanding is it goes something like this. Uh, humans are, are profoundly social beings. And we're supposed to form close relational bonds early in life, like in our infancy. And if we do, it helps uh, us form uh, other relationships later in life. If we don't, then it makes re forming relationships later in life very difficult. Something like that. I think something similar is being prayed for in verse 11. Give me a single-minded focus on you, God, and give me a deep attachment to you, God. And that's why I say that true spirituality is always going to be both single-minded and it's going to be a heart-level attachment to the Lord. Okay, but that's not enough because remember, the Psalms want to take the camera and they want to enter into the heart and look at what this experience is like from the inside. And so what I want to show you is from the Psalm, three characteristics of a single-minded heart-level attachment to God. First, it's going to begin in a comprehensive trust, trusting God fully. Number two it's going to move to exclusive worship, a full surrender to God and God alone. And thirdly, it's going to yield a deep assurance, even in the face of catastrophic threat. Trust, worship, assurance. Let's go through each of those. First of all, comprehensive trust. Um, now, this is a psalm of David, uh, and David in this psalm has two things on his mind. On the one hand, he's thinking about misery, his own misery. 
And secondly, he's thinking about God. And he's looking at his uh, misery, and he's uh, looking at his vulnerability, but then, and this is important, he's moving from his misery and vulnerability, and he's looking at the goodness of God from that vantage point. Look at verse 1. I think it's page 5. Uh, you can see the misery. He says, bow down your ears, O Lord, and hear me, for I am poor and in misery. Then look at verse 5. You can see him look at God's goodness. Verse 5 says this, for you, O Lord, are good and gracious and of great mercy to those who call upon you. He's looking away from his misery to God and God's goodness. And therefore, from that vantage point, he entrusts himself to God. And you can see that in verse 4. Comfort the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Now, the word soul here doesn't mean the disembodied part of who we are. It doesn't mean the bit of us that's a little bit like a ghost or something like that. That's not the point. Actually, this word means everything about us, and it's a very physical word, everything about us that's alive and not dead. It means my, it, it's referring to his whole being. All that he is, he is entrusting to the Lord. And my question, Emmanuel, is why? Why would he do this? Um, when I'm experiencing misery, see if you can identify. When I experience misery, I very often take it as evidence that maybe God's not good. You ever thought that way? Uh, if, if God's good, why is my life bad? One of the most important questions you'll ever ask is this, can God be good when nothing in my life is? And if you can feel the force of that question, then you can see the question, how is it that, God, that David can entrust himself to God when his life is a train wreck, which it apparently is, according to verse 1? Well, we can reconstruct some of what was happening in David's mind. And, and it gives us some insight into how it is that God gives us trust in him. Here's what I mean. Um, if you look at verse 5, Verse 5 is a quotation from our Old Testament reading. We read about it, uh, Bruce read it for us, in, uh, it's on page 9. Uh, and in our Old Testament reading, uh, Moses, this is happening hundreds of years before David is writing the psalm, uh, Moses is uh, having this amazing experience with God. Um, what was happening is this. Moses was trying to lead Israel. Israel at this point is already out of their enslavement in Egypt, but they're out in the desert, and, and as soon as they got freedom, everything went bad. It has to do with a golden calf, long story. You can go read about it. But the point is, right here, Moses is facing a national crisis. It just Everything's falling apart, and he's experiencing a leadership crisis, and he's in the middle of a personal crisis. And Moses, in this reading, basically says, hey, God, we need to meet in person. We're not, we, can't do this on, we can't do this over Zoom. We need face-to-face. -face. Because I need to know who you actually are. I need you to show me your ways. You've asked me to lead, but I need to know who you are for real. Show me who you are, God, says Moses. 
And remarkably, God agrees. Now, it's not quite face-to-face. The Lord does this weird thing where he puts Moses in a rock, and he passes by, and he... But the, the thing that really matters is that as the Lord passes by, he describes himself. He describes his name, which is to say he describes his character as he passes by Moses. And he says this, he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he moves on. Now, that description of the Lord the Lord describing his own character, that phrase or that that, uh, statement echoes throughout the whole of the rest of the, the Bible. It was a turning point for Moses. It's a turning point in the history of Israel. It's a turning point in the Bible. And it's clear that David is reading this passage and thinking about this experience as he's writing this psalm. David is thinking about that story of Moses from the vantage point of David's misery. Now, he doesn't have the same experience that Moses has. He's not put in a rock. He doesn't see God pass by. He doesn't hear an audible voice. All he has is this story from his distant past, from from the past. I mean, it happened long before him, Just just like us, just like us today. He's got the same story you have. But as David thinks about this story about Moses, listen, God makes verse 11 happen in his life. Remember verse 11? Teach me your way, O God, and I will walk in your paths. O knit my heart to you that I may fear your name. As David is thinking about this story of Moses, the Lord in that moment is teaching David his way. And as the Lord teaches David his way and who the Lord is, at the same time, the Lord is doing a work within David's heart. The Lord is uniting David's heart to the Lord in a bond of trust. The Lord is attaching David's heart to the Lord, and he's persuading David that just as the Lord was faithful to Moses in the midst of Moses' misery, so the Lord is going to be faithful to David in the midst of his misery. And therefore, David says, all right, I'm going to give my whole life to you. I trust you. And that's why David responds with verse 4. All that I am, Lord, I give to you. I lift up my whole life to you without any remainder. And Emmanuel, what I want you to see is that this is how God knits our hearts to him. Emmanuel, has the Lord knitted your heart to him? He wants to do that. He wants to do that today. First, uh, the Lord knits us to to him so that uh, we have comprehensive trust. We trust him with all that we are. But then it leads to exclusive worship. Look at verse 8 of the psalm. It says, David says this, Among the gods, there's none like you, O Lord, nor are there any deeds like yours. Now, it's kind of interesting because he kind of implies that there are other gods right there, doesn't he? Um, You need to, uh, uh, for a minute, imagine that you are an ancient polytheistic pagan. This should be fun. Um, Now, if you're an uh, ancient polytheistic pagan, the most intuitive way for you to live your life is to develop a well-diversified portfolio of gods. 
uh, and you want a well-diversified portfolio of gods because you want a contingency plan for every scenario. So uh, you have needs, right? You, uh, you, you need food. You need to make sure you have a harvest god. Uh, you need um, security. You need a war god. Uh, you want kids and a big family. You need a fertility god. And it, the, what you're trying to do in developing a well-diversified portfolio of gods is you, you want to maximize control over your life. You want to uh, shape the right team of gods so that you can orchestrate their interactions so that you can maximize control of your life. You, the point is you're at the center and you need to gather the gods around you and persuade them to do what you're asking them to do. Now, obviously, we don't do that, do we? Except we do something a lot like that. We don't call them gods. We're more sophisticated than that. But we all of us uh, are, are, in one way or the other, we're trying to coordinate uh, our pathways to various types of life fulfillment, are we not? Uh, I want, you know, vocational fulfillment, I want relational fulfillment, I want physical fulfillment, and, and therefore I work hard to diversify uh, these different life pathways. I want a good career, I want a romantic life, or, you know, I want a good partner, I want my body to work well, so I want a good exercise routine, uh, I want a, an apartment with outdoor space, you know, whatever it is, whatever life fulfillment means for you. But the objective of the game is similarly to maximize control. If I get the right life fulfillment portfolio, then I can coordinate my life and I can feel like I'm in control and hopefully I'll experience fulfillment. We're not that different. And in both a polytheistic approach to life and in a life fulfillment path, I'm at the center and I'm trying to arrange everything around me. But now go back to the reading. Because as David's heart is united to God's name, he begins to pay closer attention to what it is that God, the God of Israel, the Lord of Israel, has done. Verse 8, he begins to look at the Lord's deeds, all the things that the Lord has done. And he begins to see that the Lord is different from any other God. The Lord created the world. The Lord rescued Israel from Egypt. The Lord transforms people's lives in every generation. And as David sees all of this, he realizes that the Lord of Israel is not just a kind of divine assistant. The Lord of Israel is the center of everything in a way that David and me and you are not. And therefore, verse 10, David realizes that the Lord is the only true God. And Emmanuel, this is where single-minded, exclusive worship comes to play. Because if David is right, if the Lord of Scripture is the only real God, then that means he's the center of everything and I'm not, and you're not. And if he's the center of everything, then God must become the center of my life. It means I need to surrender myself wholly to him. That's what worship is. Worship isn't just what we're doing today. What we do today is practice so that all of our life can be a complete surrender to him. Worshiping him alone, where he's the center rather than myself. 
Verse 11, my whole life must be united into single-minded surrender to the Lord. I wonder how you're doing there. And some of us, it's very easy to spend a whole lot of time in church and to grow up in church and to never even know life outside the context of Christian community. And therefore assume that if anybody knows what it is to be a Christian, it's me. And yet for all of that, to still place myself at the center and have never really said, Lord, you are my God and I am not and I surrender myself wholly to you. Have your, well, have your way in my life and take me wherever you will. And the Lord wants you to do that today. And if that frightens you, that's okay. It is the happy path of freedom. And the Lord can give you that freedom today. So true spirituality begins with comprehensive trust. It grows to exclusive worship of surrender of the self to the Lord, and it yields an enduring assurance in the face of catastrophic threats. Catastrophic threats? Yeah. Turn over to verses 13 and 14. Um, David is facing violence, hatred, and death. That's cheery. Um, I don't mean to joke. Some of us have faced those things in the past. And if you have, you know that that kind of trauma leaves an enduring mark. Many of us will face those things in the future. Some of us will face the experience of being hated. Uh, every single one of us will face death. And it's important that we feel the gravity because real spirituality, Emmanuel, is not escapist. Uh, phony spirituality is often escapist. Phony spirituality wants to disengage, detach. We want to fantasize that if I have enough faith, then everything in my life's going to be great. But that's a lie. Real Christian spirituality knows that life is sometimes a storm. And real Christian spirituality looks at the storm and walks into it with an assurance. Now, this explains Jesus. Remember in Gethsemane? Father, if there's another way, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he got up and embraced the cross. Now, how did he do it? Well, David or Jesus was the perfect embodiment of what Psalm 86 is all about. Jesus entrusted himself to the Father as he faced violence and hatred and death. And his heart was knitted to the Father, and he had comprehensive trust, and that led to an exclusive worship, and it gave him enduring assurance as he walked towards the cross. You know, when David was writing Psalm 86, I'm sure he had no idea that one day, hundreds of years afterwards, one of his very descendants would be Jesus, would be God himself in person, becoming human to enter the storm with us. Jesus went into the storm, went up on the cross, and the Father came through for him 
Verse 13, God delivered Jesus from the pit and raised him from death. And I say this because of the many gifts that Jesus gives us, one of the best is this. Jesus loves to answer verse 11 in our lives. Jesus loves to teach us his way. And by the Holy Spirit, as Jesus teaches us his way, he knits our hearts to himself. Jesus takes his own heart attachment to the Father and in a way transfers it to us so that he binds us to God and he gives us a comprehensive trust that we cannot produce. He gives us an, an ability to worship and surrender that we cannot produce. And he gives us an, an assurance that endures through the storm that we cannot produce on our, by ourselves. And therefore today, if you want to taste real Christian spirituality, then go to Jesus Christ now and say, Jesus, will you do in me what verse 11 prays for? Jesus, will you teach me your way? And will you knit my heart to you that I may fear your name and walk in trust and in worship, in surrender and in assurance? Will you ask him? Remember, this is a prayer and not an achievement. Ask, knock, and the door will be opened. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.